All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, another MBT forum user on communication with the LCS. Let's say that one feels from both a being level and an intellectual level that he or she is wholeheartedly ready and willing to cooperate with the LCS as per your big toe. Let's say that the same person wants to somehow communicate with the LCS in whichever way possible so as to facilitate that cooperation. Is such a thing possible? And if so, what forms could such communication take or be expressed as? Well, yes, of course it's possible. That's really the whole point of it. Uh, in order, you know, let me put it differently, the process of growing up is greatly facilitated by having a good working relationship with the larger consciousness system. This larger consciousness system isn't just a machine. It's aware. It's consciousness. It, uh, you know, it thinks. It understands. And if you are at the being level serious about your growth and growing up, it will want to help you out and make connections. If this is all intellectual because you think this would really be a cool thing to do or you've read the book and it seems like it's a path you want to take, if it's all intellectual, then not so much. System's not too interested in, in uh, chatting with your ego. But if it is at the being level and it's sincere, then the system will help you out. All you have to do is ask. Make yourself available and you'll get the help you need. So that's one of the neat things about this place. It, uh, it's very encouraging and a, and a very uh, helpful to anybody who really wants to grow up. But then on the other hand, if you couldn't care less, think that growing up, you know, or that spiritual growth is, is nonsense and so on, then the system isn't going to bother with you because there's no point. Anything that it would toss to you, you would reject it or deny it. So it's only, you're only, only going to get help if you can use the help. It doesn't mean there's anything you have to believe. It's not like, well, I have to believe in a larger conscious system and then it'll help me out. It doesn't have anything to do with belief. It's whether or not you're ready to grow up. That's what it has to do with. If you're ready to grow up and you want to grow up and that's a being level uh, intent, then the system will, will help you out, will give you what you need. If you just think you are ready to grow up, but it's all really intellectual because you want to have a gee whiz wow experience, then you're not going to get much help. So yes, indeed, uh, you can do those sorts of things. All you need to do is get serious and ask for help. All right, Tom, thank you. Our next question is from somebody on the MBT forum on Eckhart Tolle. Have you ever listened to Eckhart Tolle? His teaching seems to dovetail so completely with yours. While you represent, for me at least, the pinnacle of scientific understanding and his spirituality, Eckhart perfectly complements your teachings by delving more deeply into identifying and dealing with entropy on a practical day-to-day -day level. I believe both of you two to be among the most advanced spiritual teachers that humanity currently enjoys. One picks up where the other leaves off so perfectly. I would love to see you do a chat video together with Eckhart, and I believe it would be greatly beneficial to many, many others as well. Well, I hope you're listening in, Eckhart. And <laughs> there we are. What have you got to say, Tom? 
Um, yeah, I have not read Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, but uh, my wife Pamela has read it, and she did discuss some of it with me, and I would agree with that assessment. It does seem, in many cases, to be very parallel and uh, very much uh, in tune with um, the My Big Toe ideas. Now, Eckhart doesn't get into, you know, solving physics problems with his philosophy or, you know, really the reincarnation or, I, you know, those kinds of bigger picture things. He's talking mostly about how can you get rid of your fear, live your life, interact with people, optimize your growth, become love. You know, he's all about that kind of thing. At least that's my take on it from kind of mostly being an outsider. There was a one or two items, I think, that he said that I would probably uh, not completely agree with. I don't even remember what they were. They weren't all that important. They were kind of side issues. So I would say we are very close in the way we think that uh, a person should should be in order to evolve. And I don't know that Eckhart talks in terms of evolving quality of consciousness, but, uh, you know, different metaphors are fine. It's good that two different people have different metaphors because some metaphors work better for some people and other metaphors work better for other people. So it's uh, it's terrific to have other people saying similar things to me and me saying similar things to them with different metaphors because that's more inclusive to people. It makes a wider on-ramp for people to get into the bigger picture. And maybe maybe I should say that I'd be delighted to talk with Eckert sometime if he'd like to you know if he'd like to chat I surely would be glad to chat with him but I suspect he's a very busy guy too and uh, we'll see if we happen to bump into each other but you folks out there who read his books and are on his uh, lists of friends and acquaintances on on uh, you know Facebook or other places well put the bug in his mind you know maybe it'll happen. Yeah, Oliver, you can set up a teleconference for him. That would be no problem, right? Right, no problem. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, now, another question from Chapter 79. I've been calling him Channel 79. I'm so sorry about that. On Universal well, it, Language and it, Communication. It's just CH79. I just said chapter, <laughs> I, but it could be channel. You may be right. I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to ask him. Maybe it's um, just, maybe it's cheese 79 <laughs> or ch, ch 79. Hard to say. Um, he asks, or she, is there a universal language? For example, for social systems, do beings, once conscious enough, always develop a way of understanding? Hello, goodbye, thank you, okay, yes and no. Are there realities where this doesn't happen can you tell us more about universal language first part of the question well language universal language is an interesting thing when you travel to other reality frames because you wouldn't expect to go to another reality frame and you know be speaking english or french or something and have somebody understand you but there is no communication problems when you are in other places other reality frames Everybody seems to communicate without any trouble at all. Um, of course, telepathy communicates not with words, but in terms of concepts and ideas and feelings. It's it's more paragraphy rather than, than words. So telepathy 
isn't language specific. It can cross languages very easily. But even when you go to these places and you're talking very directly with an individual, uh, even if you have a body there, there's no, you know, there is no uh, language barrier. Perhaps the larger consciousness system does an automatic translation, you know, like uh, like Google does sometimes. You know, I'm not sure exactly how that's done, but I've never had a problem with understanding precisely what anybody was trying to tell me when I've been in other reality frames. I don't know exactly why that is, but I, that is, and I think other people who would say the same thing who travel around is that uh, it seems like everybody speaks the same language I do, and I seem to speak the same language everybody else does. Of course, none of it is spoken in that sense. It's all in the mind, but uh, not a problem. And I suspect when we get to care a lot more about each other and our intuition and our connectedness consciousness consciousness with each other starts to grow we probably will understand each other a lot better too all right tom um the second part of the question you've already answered third part of the question is there anything unique that stands out to you about human social interaction and communication (laughs) well stands out to me is that it's right now its state is horrible and where it needs to go (laughs) is is a state that uh, is much better right now our communication just just as we are self-centered and we are full of fear and ego and belief our that means our interactions and our communications with other people are like that we talk to other people and mostly it's about us Uh, they talk to us and again it's about us so we're not very good at listening we're not very good at appreciating other people we tend to categorize them judge them put them in pigeonholes and then uh, you know discard them or or court them whichever uh, seems appropriate and that is not the basis of really good communications or relationships or anything else but that's what most people do so hopefully we can get rid of that fear we won't have to act like that. And uh, our our social systems and communication and caring for each other will thrive. Right now, it's not so good. But uh, hopefully it'll get better as we get better. All right, Tom. Uh, another part of the question is, uh, do you know how far back the LCS memory goes? Does it have an official first memory? which is publicly accessible. I just don't know the answer to that. I've never, uh, I've never tried. I never (laughs) uh, thought about that. What, what, how far back it goes. I suspect, you see, the LCS had to grow up just like we did. It didn't just start the way it is now. It had to grow up. It had to evolve. It went through a period of, you know, making all the same mistakes we do. It went through a period of trying to impose its will on things and, whatever else it did that when we when we uh, when we became individuated units of consciousness with free will suddenly this larger consciousness system had a lot of entities that it couldn't control anymore because we had free will so it had to learn how to deal with us and what help what was helpful and what wasn't so that was its growth path it wasn't uh, always a being of love either. It started out uh, pretty much the way we are. 
but it grew up and uh, we're still in that process. So I'm not sure if that right. kind of lost the bubble on that or whether there's <laughs> there's more to that. What do you think, Donna? Is that? Uh... I, I think that's good considering how the, the question is phrased here. Um, we'll move on to the next question on responding to experiencing injustice. Tom, I'm really interested in our reactions towards injustice and entropy reduction. Despite time and time again choosing the high road with our landlord, he has basically kicked us out of a year-long lease early and then charged us an early termination fee when things didn't go according to his plans. I truly thought I was not an angry person and have evolved significantly over the past few years, but this and other events at work have shown me how much work I have yet to do. And yet I wonder... What is a truly evolved response to such an unjust situation? How do people who have been timid and unsure of their worth their whole lives, like me, respond with an innate understanding of their own dignity and at the same time with compassion towards others? Okay. Well, the first is to realize that being abused by somebody else has nothing to do with your own dignity. You have dignity as an individual person because of who you are and what you are and the quality of your consciousness, that's the source of your dignity. What other people do is, you know, belongs to the other people. If the person treated you badly, tried to abuse you, threw you out, and then asked you to pay extra for it, well, it was his dignity that was really the problem. It was, it was his lack of quality that was the problem, and there's nothing you can do about that. People are however they are, and sometimes you'll run into people who are unpleasant and abusive. When you do, you work with them the best way you can if you have to, and if you don't have to, you go elsewhere. Uh, that's just, life is like that. Sometimes, you know, you will run into such people, and you have to deal with them. But feeling bad about yourself, feeling wrong, feeling a victim, uh, feeling upset, and outraged, all of that is just fear and ego making the situation worse. You just have to accept that sometimes life is tough. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you get the raw end of the deal. Sometimes you get abused and deal with that positively, not negatively. If you deal with it with self-pity, oh, woe is me. This always happens to me. Or that you think that somehow has has not treated you with, you know, the dignity that you deserve. Well, that's probably true, but that's not your problem. That's their problem. They are the ones that have to grow up and treat people better. You sound like you were doing the best you could to deal with the situation, and it just wasn't enough. This person was probably impossible to deal with. Sounds like he was very greedy and uh, was trying to get everything he wanted and didn't really care much about anybody else. Well, there are people like that all over. And if you get upset with them or let them upset you, then you are becoming part of the problem. Just let it go. Accept that that happens sometime. Gather up whatever you've got left and go, you know, go someplace else. Go do whatever it is you have to do to try to recover. Sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, life is throws you curveballs like that. And your point is to deal with it positively, not negatively. Dealing with it negatively just makes it worse. Well, we'll, we'll put a few 
lighter moments here in the in the fireside chat. This is laughing just to please others. It's an interesting question. In situations where people make jokes or laugh about things I can't laugh about, there's a force or a habit that pushes me to a laughter or a smile that isn't honest and immediately feels awkward. I'm working on this issue for quite a while, but it's hard. I want to express my true inner state, and I don't want to show anything just to please others or just to make them like, like me because I laugh at their jokes. So to be serious, when I'm in a state of confidence... Um, right? Not to laugh when you don't feel like it. So I hardly, so hard to do, actually. Uh, would that be honest? Well, you know, it's nothing wrong with making people feel good. It's nothing wrong with uh, making other people, uh, you know, feel nice. It's, it all depends on the situation. Let's say somebody's telling jokes and you just think they're silly. You know, they're the jokes that maybe, uh, you know, kindergarten people tell each other and they're just, you don't have much use for them because they're just silly. Well, you could still smile at, if they're having fun and it's, uh, you know, if your other friends are having fun, well, you can smile just because they're having fun. You can smile with them. There's no problem in that. Being sociable and being happy, uh, whether you actually thought the joke was funny, really isn't the overriding uh, thing here. On the other hand, let's say the joke was uh, was rude or the joke was racist or the joke was lewd or something else. Now, that's a different thing. At that point, you don't want to encourage that. And the best thing to do was probably just leave. Just go someplace else. Hang out with people that aren't like that. And if that's hard to do because these are all the people you work with in the office and this is a group in a office gathering all around the water cooler, well, just leave. It may be a little difficult to do, but, uh, you know, pretty soon they may realize that you're just not interested in that sort of stuff and they'll take it someplace else. Won't do that while you're around. And if they decide not to like you and not to hang out with you anymore, well, I, I chalk that up as a win. That's good. People like that don't like you say, all right. Now they don't come around me anymore. I don't like being around them anyway, you see. So you're not going to lose if what you're doing is making a moral choice not to engage in something that is immoral, like racist jokes, you see. So then walk away. You don't have to fight. You don't have to put up a fuss. You don't have to call them names or anything. That probably, particularly like in an office situation or family situation, that just makes everything worse. Just tell them you have something to do. Got to go now, guys. You know, I got to do this or that. Or nature calls and just walk off and don't come back. Don't hang out with them. Why hang out with people who are rude or lewd or crude or racist? Now, if they're not and they're just being silly, well, smile and be silly with them. It's not such a hard thing to do. Uh, If you don't feel like being silly, at least you can grin at them for being silly. Not necessarily at the joke, but just for them being silly. There's no, there's no problem there, being sociable and being friendly and, and engaging with other people who are having fun, even if you're not. It's not a matter of, of uh, you know, I need to be honest, and if I don't like their joke, I need to tell them. You don't have to tell people about things you don't like about them. You just let that be. You can't change them. 
All you'll do is make things worse. All right, then. No plans on visiting the White House soon. Uh, next question is on population limits of a PMR. <laughs> uh, how, many si- <laughs> how many simultaneous players can PMR handle? Humans and other species can keep reproducing indefinitely while spreading out from Earth into the universe, at least until the physical universe itself becomes uninhabitable. If PNR becomes so popular that all of these available avatars are occupied, then we could end up with many trillions of players or more. Is that a problem? What is the well, population of any reality system in the LCS that you know of? It's an interesting question in that there will obviously be some um, sweet point as far as the number of seats in simulators. So you're the larger conscious system, and you've made a bunch of individuated units of consciousness, and most of them are playing in virtual realities, and some are just still hanging out in the chat room, and some of them maybe are in management, but you've got this system. So how much is enough? You know, how many IUOCs, individual unit of consciousness, do you need? Well, there'll be a point where more is better because you'll have more entities that are trying to grow up and that are lowering their entropy, but you'll get to a point that that more isn't better anymore because it takes resources to support each one. You've got to send data to each one. You've got to keep track of information and, and store stuff that relative to each one. So every one comes with a cost as well as a benefit. And when that cost becomes greater than the benefit, you don't need any more. You've, you've reached the, you know, the, the sweet point that uh, you've got all the ones you can and any more after that wouldn't uh, really be useful. So there is some point of, it's not like you just more and more and more and more is always, uh, you know, is always better. More isn't always better. If, if more comes with a cost, then the, so there will be some number. And this is actually an interesting subject when you talk about uh, the, uh, the Fermi paradox. Now, this question isn't about that, but this, it's kind of an interesting question, and, it, and this point is kind of crucial to it. The Fermi paradox says that if – back up. The Fermi paradox is based on, on the, the fact that we live – the Milky Way, we live in a relatively younger part of the universe. There's parts of this universe that are a billion years or more older than us. A billion years, a lot of years. So if we start with the assumption that other places in the universe would also support life, just like this place, that we're not unique. And if places in the older part of the universe worked out the way this did, as far as evolution goes, then they'd be about where we are in about the same time we got here. Then they would have been into space travel, at least initially, a billion years ago. Well, if they were into space travel a billion years ago because they're much older part of the universe, then Fermi asked, well, where are they? You know, at, at an assumption of them moving even at slow, very sublight speeds in rocket ships over a long time inhabiting, you know, the next inhabitable place and then the next inhabitable place, you know, kind of how people spread out on our planet, you know, they just kind of migrated and migrated and migrated. Nobody went really too fast, but over time you start to spread out. And the logic was that 
even with slow sub-light speed, they should have been through our part of the world long, long, long ago because they would be a billion years ahead of us in technology. Well, there's been, if you, if you Google the Fermi paradox, you'll see that this is a very strong paradox, a very strong logical paradox. There is, if you work out, if you give numbers to the probabilities of things, you'll find out that the probability that they would have already been here a long time ago is very, very high. So, people have tried to solve this paradox, come up with reasons. And so far, nobody has really had a strong answer to it, why it should be that way. There's been dozens. Again, Google it and you'll find, even in a, in a Wikipedia article, you will find seven or eight or ten solutions to the Fermi paradox, but people who do logic and science have mostly come to the conclusion that none of them are really all that strong an answer. They uh, have a little more hand-waving than necessary and not quite as much uh, deductive logic in them. So here's a, here is a solution that keys on this very problem that this person brought up. And that is that this planet and in this galaxy is all there is of sentient beings in this whole universe. Now, the immediate objection to that is, well, that'd be a waste. Look at all those trillions and trillions of stars and billions and billions of planets. Why would a system produce all of that if it isn't going to use but one little seemingly insignificant drop in a bucket here? But you see, when you look at a virtual reality, that's not the case. That is the case for a material reality. That's why materialists, mostly scientists, say, well, there must be ETs out there because look at all the trillions of opportunities. There's just so many opportunities in this, in this uh, uh, universe of ours that surely there are others besides us. We're not that unique here. We don't seem to have anything that isn't common elsewhere. But you see, that's based on the material idea that all that stuff exists or is calculated. In a virtual reality, you only send data streams to the players. And how many seats does the larger consciousness need? Well, okay, it's got seven and a half billion seats here now. And I know there's dozens of other virtual reality systems that also probably are in around that magnitude. So how many seats does it need? You see, you get to a point where you don't need any more seats. It's the cost of, of servicing those more seats is bigger than the advantage of having more players. So if all the seats they need out of this physical universe is seven and a half billion, then they've got them all right here. And there is no wastage because this whole reality is nothing more than the data streams of all the players. That's it. All those stars and galaxies and all those things, they don't have to be computed ever. They only get computed for a short period of time when somebody looks in a big telescope and says, ah, look, at there's stars and planets. There's billions of them. All right. They get, they get uh, computed as a little point of light. That doesn't take much that doesn't take many bits right you have a, a bit for or three bits for location 
one bit for intensity, maybe a bit for color, and that's it. So that's cheap. All of those billions and billions of stars there in the sky, you know, don't take up much more data than a Word document. You know, it's just not a big expense on the part of the larger consciousness system. So we could be the only living things in this whole universe because it isn't a waste of processing or a waste of, you know, stuff. That stuff just can just be there as eye candy for us when we look at the stars at night or when we look in a telescope. And, you know, it's only at night. Once the sun comes out, we don't see any of that stuff. So that doesn't have to be rendered to the half the population that's in daylight. And of all the other half of the population at night, most of them are asleep. And it doesn't have to be rendered to them either. So there's just a very few people that it ever has to be rendered to. And that's just lights in the sky. And there's probably not but one hundred thousandth of a, of a percent of our population has big telescopes that look into the sky and force them to render it for just a little bit of time that they're looking. So you see, there is no waste. It comes down to how many seats does the system need? Are seven and a half billion enough? It could produce, it could evolve this whole, this whole universe just as a background, just as a, a stage for us to play in. There may not be any ETs. Now, I'm not saying that this is the way it is. I'm saying this is a logical possibility. And given the Fermi paradox, this logical possibility would seem to be more likely than the other possibilities. I just thought I'd throw that in as a little interesting thing about the number of people in a seat or the number of seats they'd have in a, in a trainer. You know, this is an entropy reduction trainer. How many seats do you need? I don't know. How big is the system? It's pretty big. And how many seats could it benefit from? But certainly there is a limit where you just don't need any more seats. Well, Tom, the next question, a big picture question, comes from John McKay, and it follows along the same lines of what you've said, I think. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun to speculate about the end of our evolution in this VR. That is virtual reality. Theoretically, we could reach a point of growth where this world is no longer needed. How would that manifest? People might stop having children. Avatars could fall down and rot. Or if there's no one to see it, people might start disappearing like an episode out of the Twilight Zone. Well, he starts out by saying uh, to speculate about the end of evolution. And that's like speculating of, you know, whether the moon is actually made out of green cheese or made out of uh, white cheese. It's really not made out of cheese at all. And evolution doesn't have an end point. Evolution is an open-ended thing that doesn't just end. So the question is a little hard to answer because the initial premise is not true evolution goes on and on and on and on. So if we tried to make some sense of the question, anyway, we would say that uh, perhaps, um, you know, the evolution here might be limited by the number of people. And when this, this particular trainer is uh, not being used as much, then maybe it would disappear, perhaps. But, you know, that'd be like anything else. When an amusement park isn't being used as much, what happens? There's just fewer and fewer people, and then one day they close it down. It doesn't have to be a big event. You just have individuated units of consciousness logged on. I suspect if World of Warcraft just threw in the towel because they weren't making money anymore, you know, 
that's just been the way it is. People would stop playing that. They'd go play something else. And we would have the same, uh, we would have the same choice. We'd have to go play in some other game, but I don't see any reason why that would ever come to be. This is a, a perfectly good trainer and I don't see evolution ever getting to a, a done point. That's not the nature of evolution. On a different subject entirely from MBT forum user Wolfgod, a rare but reoccurring motif in my dreams is that I'm being bitten by a poisonous snake. The experience is vivid enough for me to wake up in PMR from the bite. Now, in view of the idea that one should remove fears at the being level, how should I deal with the snake the next time it tries to sink its fangs into me? It seems like a good opportunity to remove some fear. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on doing this vis-a-vis the dream snakes. I don't want to just sit there and let them bite me. <laughs> as such would seem to be training to passively allow harmful things to happen to me. <laughs> but nor do I want to be fearful of them. How can I prepare myself to meet them next? Well, next time he runs into a dream snake, he could just make it disappear. He could wave his little fairy wand and poof, it would just disappear and go away. That would be one way to make it not bite you. Or if he wanted to be more dramatic than that, he could, uh, you know, drop a shield, you know, like they have in uh, the sci-fi movies, you know, it's this this uh, invisible force field. He could put an invisible force field down between him and the snake, and then he could laugh when the snake hit the force field and bounced off. So use his imagination, you know, create tools, create the, the great snake catching tool so that when the snake comes at you, you snag him in a box put a stamp on it and send him to your worst enemy, you know, whatever, just, you can make things up, put a, use your imagination. This is, this is the non-physical. You can create there on a dime. You can create very easily there here in this reality, in this, this virtual reality, you have to really focus your intent to make things happen in that reality. Your intent can make things happen in an instant. But if you're fearful, what you'll do is you'll say, well, I'm going to try to make this snake disappear, but I'm still frightened. I think it's not going to work, and the snake's going to bite me anyway. Well, what will happen is it won't work, and the snake's going to bite you anyway because you're still fearful, and that's an interaction with your fear. That's what it's all about. So if you can be non-fearful, then the snake's not a problem. Just poof, it's gone. If you are fearful, then all of these tricks will just be tricks to you, and they won't work. So the first thing you have to do is to start working on that fear and uh, figure that when that happens again, you'll just deal with it. And if it bites you, it bites you. So far, it's bitten you evidently several times and you're still here. So it must not be that bad. Hasn't killed you yet. So buck up, get your courage up and uh, go duel with that snake next time and make it go away. It's just a matter of having a, a fearless intent. So it's a good practice. That's like uh, Luke had to practice with that little shiny ball that he put up that kept zapping in with lightning bolts. You know, this this can be your your practice snake. You can practice your your fear with it. So have a confident attitude that you're in charge and the snake isn't, and then it'll work. If you just can't get that confidence up, then you need to work on getting rid of the fear first, and then go back and try it again. Use the snake as a learning tool.
Okay, Tom. Dom from the MBT forum asks about the evolutionary potential of brain-machine interfaces. Tom defines our virtual physical brains as what defines the constraints of what our consciousness can perceive. This thus serves as a limiting factor to dampen our experience into the predictable patterns of PMR causality. Elon Musk has founded a company called Neuralink, of whose primary objective is to develop a high bandwidth brain-machine interface. Supposing that the interface worked and a larger system could be established connecting human brains with artificial intelligence, then would this provide greater possibilities in terms of evolutionary potential for the unification of two types of consciousness, or would this more likely be used to control and subvert masses of people? It's very difficult to establish the intent and motives of such individuals, but it is possible to shed light on the subject, unless this has been answered before somewhere, and I may have missed it. Okay, well, that, that's a bunch of questions. Um, it's not likely that we're going to download a brain into a robot, into a machine, if that's one of the ways that this could be done that he's talking about. I wouldn't say that it's impossible because I hate to say that anything's impossible. You have to be arrogant to say that things are impossible. But... I think it's very unlikely because the brain doesn't really contain any information. The brain contains just a set of constraints. It constrains what the consciousness can do. The consciousness has all the information and you're not going to download your consciousness into a machine. Although if you build a machine that has free will choices, you know, um, you can do that with fuzzy logic, with um, what's it called, uh, neural networks, things that are non-algorithmic. If you can produce a system that's non-algorithmic and can make choices based on past history, but not using algorithms, using its best guess based on its experience, then the larger consciousness system well, get an IUOC to log on to that because now it'll just be a different kind of avatar. So if you build the system that has free will, consciousness will log on and then the thing will be conscious. Okay? So that's how you get consciousness in a robot or in a computer is you make it attractive to some IUOC to inhabit it, to log on to it. I shouldn't say inhabit it. It makes it sound like it lives in there. It just logs onto it. Okay, now if you had some um, something in that you were going to make a cyborg sort of machine plus a brain, and you were going to do that such that it would lower constraints, therefore to make something bigger and better, I don't know that that would work very well. To me, that seems like it's kind of reaching for straws. I don't think there's much to do there because if the brain is part of it and the brain has constraints, then most chains are only as strong as their weakest link. And if the brain's the weakest link, then just because you, you connect it to some big computer, you're still going to have that same set of limitations. Um the, the fallacy, I believe, in, in these ideas is that they think the brain contains information. 
and contains processing power, and that this information can be transferred to greater processing power, therefore making something bigger and better. Well, the brain doesn't have information, and it doesn't have any processing power. So giving it more processing power when it really doesn't have any at all anyway, and it's not using any processing power, really isn't going to accomplish much. So I think these folks are going to be very frustrated in their attempt to do this because it's just crosswise with the way things work. So I wouldn't worry about them, uh, you know, the evil genius using it to control the masses because I don't think the evil genius is going to win on this one. I suspect that they'll come up empty-handed in the laboratory. All right, Tom. Um, next question is um, from an MBT user on more practical exercises. Have you considered creating more video exercises for various abilities? And it's funny that you should ask this, but we are in the process of taking some of Tom's exercises and putting them into a video product where Tom will demonstrate some of the concepts that he's used over the past 25 years. And I think you'll find them very interesting on breathing and meditation and, and different things like that. We have a, a plan for that. And Tom, if you want to comment on that. Hmm, not really. Uh, I'm putting out a few things that uh, might be helpful. You know, we're, we're trying to be more helpful for the doers who want to do, even though doing really isn't what's important. It's the being that's important, but we've got a bunch of doers out there that want to do something, and uh, maybe we can give them something to do that will also help them be, and if so, we're going to try to put out some of those, some of those things, but Guys, it's not really about doing. It's about being, and you don't need to do to be. All you need to have is an intent to be, and that being will come about with that intent if you keep that intent focused on being that. And if you keep trying to be that, you will become it. And the doing is is uh, not all that important. <laughs> okay, Tom, I think we're rolling around to the last question here. Um, oh, wow. From, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. We we just plowed through 26 <laughs> questions, so this is good. good. Um, Ash was asking about um, presenting MBT with a visual aid of structure. Um, having a, a, He wanted a discussion on whether it would be beneficial to, to show the fractal evolution process and the layers of reality in a poster or set of posters. Yes, absolutely. Any sort of visual aids are good. People learn from seeing more than they learn from listening. So, uh, well, visual people do anyway. I guess auditory people may be the other way around, but... A visual aid tends to get bigger pictures across more easily than do words. So I would say, yes, if Ash, if you've got any ideas of how to do that or how you would illustrate the things that you say, uh, layers, uh, layers of self, layers uh, for commonly experienced fear tests, benchmarks of growth, any of that sort of thing, have at it. Just do them and uh, we'll take a look at them and we'll put them up where people can see them, any useful aids. And we are thinking about doing some of that ourselves. There's a, there is a, 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 an effort going on to 
start with the MBTLA, which is where I presented uh, the virtual reality and then the, the physics experiments, and try to do that with animation that shows the concepts, animates the concepts as we go. So there's an effort to do that, but obviously animation is an expensive process that needs very talented people and very large computers. So it's not an easy thing just to do in your basement, you know, in your spare time. It takes some resources and we're going to, we're working on trying to solve that problem. But we think, uh, uh, Ash, that your idea is excellent and we're trying to work on it ourselves, but we can use all the help that I encourage you to make these things and, and uh, put, them up, put them up on your own site or, you know, give them to us if they seem real useful, we'll put them up and show them as well. We've got a few minutes for just one more question that Oliver spotted. And this question comes from Mary. <laughs> um, a quick question. When you return to your body, do you sometimes forget how to work it? I mean, surely not now after so many years of experience, but in the beginning, like for a few moments, just completely have no idea how to make the body work. Yes, that can happen because you're disconnected from it, and it takes you a little time to reconnect and get a, get all the signals lined up and, and get it working again. Just relax, give it a few minutes, and it'll all come back to you. So don't uh, don't be upset. Don't feel like you're paralyzed and you know gonna somehow while you were gone, you know your spinal cord was cut or something, and now you're gonna be paralyzed. Just take a deep breath. Let it, let it relax, and you will see that very quickly it will get its act together. But that sometimes happens. Huda, did you have a question? I saw a hand going up there at, at the end. Oh, that's right. You can't speak. Uh, you, we need to read it. Okay, Donna, could you read her question? Yes, I, I have it. Yes, I have it here in the text, um, in the text box. In the last, uh, in his last email, Keith mentioned the dark side of the LCS that present, prevents us to get things done, if I understood well, which makes me feel curious what that meant. Isn't everything here to help us? Uh, I think Keith was joking about <laughs> the, L yeah. the LCS yeah. and the, the various little tricks it throws in our path when we got to try to get things done, like editing the 60 hours of the Cultural Connection video and all of those lovely challenges that goes with it. Not, I think he was joking about that. Yeah. yeah. We I have been say, more helped. We've had more help than not. <laughs> yeah, I think what Keith was joking about was that sometimes things just seem to go wrong. And uh, sometimes we seem to just get behind to where it's impossible to catch up and so on. But that's not because the larger consciousness system is giving us a hard time. It's because we need to learn time management. We need to learn, you know, what the what to do and what to let go of, and we need to uh, have our priorities in order. So the stuff on the bottom, maybe we just have to let go. And those are challenges for us. Keith was just uh, feeling a little grumpy because he had all of this editing to do, and he thought he was done. And just when he thought he was done, he wasn't done anymore. And he had to go back and do a lot of it over. So he was just a little grumpy because of that. But you can't blame that on the larger consciousness system. That's that stuff that happens that you're supposed to just deal with in a positive way. There are a couple of things that happen now again, now and again that have no logical explanation to them. And there were some things that cropped up like that. Um, 
And so we just chalk it off as welcome to our world. <laughs> so we just have a we just have a little laugh along with the LCS with it. <laughs> so anyway, this brings us to the top of the hour for the thirty seventh fireside chat, and we thank you all for being here. It was delightful fun, and I hope to see you again. Thank you so much.